If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and a warm welcome to everyone listening in. So here we are on Zoom again, when we could be falling in love or out of love in the cosy London Review bookshop on a freezing January night in London. But in the meanwhile, I'm very happy to introduce to you Josh Cohen. We hate losers, he writes because we are born to lose. Josh Cohen is a professor of modern literary theory at Goldsmiths, University of London, and a psychoanalyst in private practice. He is the author of many distinguished books, including The Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark, and Not Working, Why We Have to Stop. Tonight, we're here to discuss Losers, Josh's extended essay on politics, humility, language and loss, published by Peninsula Press. I regard Losers as an important stretch of deep thinking and writing. I believe it to be most timely and valuable because, in Josh's own words, to disavow one's own fragility is to set the scene for calling someone a loser. Hello, Josh. Welcome. Hi, Debbie. Thank you. It's a shame we're not talking side by side, Josh, because you're a very convivial person to um, be in conversation with in real life. So we're going to do our best. Congratulations on Losers. Um, it's such an epic read. It's a it's a short book and a very dense book. Uh, we're very lucky to have it. And I wanted to ask you, what was the impulse to write it? Why why did you write it? I think almost everything I write seems to have its seed in a very old and insistent feeling. This one really links to one of the threads that runs through this book, runs through so much of what I write, which is my strange dedication 
to uh, the short comic strip Peanut, and in this case in particular to the figure of Charlie Brown, who inaugurated for me a kind of intimacy with the whole idea of loss and being a loser. He introduced to me the idea that losing was a condition of life. And this is something I was really made aware of very early on, where kind of state of permanent bewilderment and complexity that I carried through my childhood formed my relationship to the world, really. I, I, I really had a bad time um, in the first years of school. This isn't sort of sentimental uh, retrospective reconstruction. It's something that really sort of still lives in my gut. I remember my apparently freakish inability to comply, to understand the forms and the rituals and the protocols of the school day, to do what was expected of me, was a matter of sort of constant hilarity uh, and, and finger pointing by fellow pupils and teachers alike. And I think that that formative experience is sort of carried over in, into so much of the way that I see the world and understand human relationships. And I think understand politics as well. And I, I, I feel like the whole rhetoric of losing has become such an ambiguous weapon in today's political culture. And so I really wanted to bring together uh, as intimately as possible, this formative experience that I feel is is very much a part of who I am with a kind of a take on our predicament in, in, in political life today. It is a political book and it, it kind of speaks to the bewildering language in the first instance of the Trump years. I noticed that in your interview with Adam Phillips, he referred to losers almost as a uh, Trump post-trauma book. And I think that's fair enough, too, because, because your attention is on language and you are listening in to the ways in which uh, a truth, when it is denied, is an opportunity to create a false reality, another, another reality, a fake reality. So I didn't win, I didn't uh, lose an election, I won an election. So in a sense, you're looking, um, you're moving on from Orwell's doublethink uh, in 1984, uh, peace is war, or war is peace, and um, freedom is slavery, two and two and five. And you, 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 you're really looking at the language that has so bewildered us and continues to do so. And you refer to a poem by Elizabeth Bishop called The Art, which um, is a, a witty, sad, wise uh, look at the art of, of losing. And I, I didn't know this poem, so I thought that I would just read it out for people here tonight. Um, so this is Elizabeth Bishop, One Art. The art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost, that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day, except the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent, 
the art of losing isn't hard to master. And then she continues. Um, so a, she loses her mother's watch. She loses three houses. She loses a whole country. She loses two rivers. And she loses a beloved. And the last line is, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So, Josh, she seems to be saying that loss is life. We might as well master it with some humility. Do you agree? I think that, you know, the reason why I was so reticent about the poem in the book is because it says in this wonderfully concentrated way, I think everything that I would want to say in the book. But I also wanted, I suppose, to conduct this thought experiment, um, a speculative theory as well of what's happening, which is, well, what happens if you refuse to master the art of loss and instead invent and become a kind of sole proprietor of a different art, which is the art of not losing or never losing, of eliminating loss from the very possibility of your horizon. This, I think, is the Trumpian gambit. He persuaded us that loss was impossible for him because it just didn't enter into his realm of possibilities. And he created a world and invited his followers to enter into it, in which they too could share in a kind of, in a way, psychotic world of losslessness. And I say psychotic because of this reference early in the book to the Freudian unconscious. Freud defines psychosis in a number of ways, but one of them is being overwhelmed by one's own unconscious, turning one's un unconscious inside out so that it becomes one's exclusive mode of thinking. Now, with Trump, there is a, a particular feature of the unconscious that is very evident in everything he says, which is its invulnerability to loss in, in the unconscious. One thing can be and not be at the same time. There is no internal contradiction. There is no time and therefore no wearing away and therefore no loss. And I think that Trump lives in this world in which all the evidence in the world that there was a loss, that there was an in insurrection, then sit alongside the conviction that he won the election and that it was stolen from him. And the one does nothing to the other. And so whatever he doesn't want to know is simply banished from this alternative reality that he's sealed himself and his followers into. And I think it does something to explain the apparently magical capacity he has to ensure that the dial is never moved, really, on the on what we think of the, as the credulity of his supporters. But I don't think it's credulity in the sense that we normally understand it. They, they are actually sharing a world in which loss is not a possibility that they're rejection, rejecting, but, but, but simply doesn't exist. And so there is something, I think, at least to the most ardent Kool-Aid drinking supporter, there is something about it that is literally impossible. Yeah. And you and you quote one of his um, rally 
teachers, we are going to win so much. You will be sick and tired of winning. A disavowal of reality and creating another one. You kind of move that argument to very interesting places. So climate change is fake news. COVID-19 is is fake news. And you, you use the language of the pandemic. Um, I quote you again, and it's a very quotable book. Splitting preserves the happy, near psychotic delusion of total immunity. Yes. So, so this immunity, um, when does it dissolve? And you need a you need a booster. The kind the kind of immunity that you that you are exploring. It's a very sort of timely question because I think on January the sixth last year. There was a moment of terror and an extreme catharsis because we thought that the immunity was beginning to dissolve, that everything that shored up this alternative reality was about to come crashing down, that there was going to be exposure of this truth. But again, I think a sort of unwillingness to appreciate the depth and the intricacy of the alternative world that's been created that the, the the sort of, in a way, by then, riskless gambit of this insurrection, of this attempted insurrection, was that if it failed and he could then be accused of trying to foment uh, sedition, he already had everything in place to invert everything, every reality we'd seen and, and, and create a completely factitious alternative narrative, which didn't need to be coherent. You could say that actually all the insurrectionists were Antifa, but you didn't have to. There didn't really need to be any contestation of facts at all. You simply needed to occupy a universe in which you were under siege from people who were telling you things, telling you, your supporters, things that they didn't want to hear, things that were uncongenial. Mm -hmm. And uncongeniality becomes a kind of synonym for lies. I mean, J.T. Ballard explored this uh, in his novel Kingdom Come. I don't know if you you read it. No, Um, I reckon. It's it's kind of a restaging of Freud's civilization and its discontent. Mm -hmm when consumerism slips into soft fascism. In Ballard's words, the future, and I quote him, is a cable TV program going on forever, a barcode, DCTV, and a parking space. Mm. Um, so, so, so everyone has been abducted by hyper-consumerism. That's, that's what it means to win. And I'll quote Ballard, at the sales counter, the human race's greatest confrontation with existence. There were no yesterdays, no history to be relived, only an intense transactional present. Mm. Would you read would you read a section of of losers that mm. speaks to these themes? Yes, thank you. Um I'm going to read the, the very beginning actually. Um because it's okay. a joke and I hope. I hope uh, the joke is appreciated. <clears throat> On the eve of the Day of Atonement, the rabbi walks into his empty synagogue 
and ascends the bima, or central platform. Overtaken by fear and trembling at the prospect of soon having to account for his soul before God, he drops his knees, raises his arms and visage to heaven and cries out, My God! I am nothing! I am nothing! At this very moment, the cantor, overwhelmed by the rabbi's display of spontaneous devotion, he follows him to the bimmer, drops down behind him and bellows in his resounding basso profundo, My God, I am nothing! I am nothing! Unbeknownst to both men, the beadle has been concealed at the back, witnessing their objections before the Holy One. Unable to contain his emotion a moment longer, he rushes to the bimmer, falls prostrate behind the counter, and in his grating high-pitched squeal declares, oh My God, I, I am nothing, I am nothing! At which point, the rabbi raises his eyebrow and leaning into the counter with a sneer and a thumb pointed at the beadle grunts, Look who thinks he's nothing. I heard this justly famous Jewish joke a good many times as a child at the family table. It made me laugh out loud long before I got the punchline. Getting it has made the joke timelier, if not funnier. It's hard to imagine a sharp condensation of our political moment with its rhetoric of cynically competitive humility, the, the vituperation of elites and experts, the promise to speak for you, the hard-working family, the left behind, the silent majority. The joke, of course, is that the performance of humility conceals an exercise in rivalry and arrogance of God. Even our shared nullity before God has a hierarchy, and only those at its bottom end are naive or dumb enough to imagine otherwise. Look who thinks he's nothing. Yes, God finally makes losers of us all, but come on. In everything there are winners and losers, so why not in losing? It feels like a good question to put to a public world dominated until recently by the noise of one man who could not contemplate losing even when losing because that would make him a loser. In fact, it was at the very moment he was made a loser that the Trumpian project revealed itself as a personal mission to deny the possibility of life. If he lost, he repeatedly assured the world in the months before the election, it could only ever be evidence that he'd won, a prediction handily confirmed by the results. I do have much more humility than people would think, Trump told an interviewer in 2016. He wasn't going to share, he added, because he wanted to remain unpredictable. Humility was a secret resource best preserved by keeping it entirely concealed. Let people know just how much humility you have, and some loser like the beadle is bound to fall under the illusion he's the same as you. The last decade has seen the ascendancy of a politics formed by wishes, bent on expunging the presence of loss from public discourse. It declares victory over the pandemic even as countless lives and incomes are lost to it. It sells the irreversible losses of national wealth, influence and prestige inflicted by Brexit as an overwhelming win. Being a psychoanalyst, I find this wishful politics makes me think irresistibly of another, much older region of human life built around the extirpation of loss. When Freud called the unconscious timeless, zeitlos, he was referring not to its universality, but to the absence in it of any notion of time and therefore of loss. 
This is a feature illustrated by the borrowed, borrowed cattle joke he liked to quote. B accuses A of having damaged the cattle he borrowed from him. A replies that it was damaged when he borrowed it, that he returned it undamaged, and that he never borrowed the cattle in the first place. In waking life, these options cancel one another out. In a time-bound universe, a cattle cannot be both damaged and undamaged, nor can you return a kettle you never borrowed. But in the timeless unconscious, where a thing can indeed both be and not be, such logical scruples are swept away. In its wishful confines, one need never reckon with loss, other than as a kind of furtive gain. How did it take Trump to see how effective a logic this might be for the conduct of politics, to discover that the machinations of the inner life could model the conduct of external life. You incited an insurrection, say his accusers. Nobody replies, you incited it. They did it at their own volition, and in any case, there was no insurrection. Trump, it now turns out, was the rabbi, for whom being nothing is only ever another way of being everything. What if, within post-Trump world, the task of Democrats and ordinary citizens, still nostalgically attached to notions of truth and justice, is to reckon with being the Beatle? dumb enough to think that losing really means losing. The pandemic may not have helped in this task, putting us in, as it has, in close contact with the wish to be rabbi, not beadle. The happy operator for whom losing a job and income is merely an opportunity to retool and acquire a string of marketable new skills who will emerge from the depredations of lockdown superfit, polyglot and proficient in carpentry. Surely the horror of losing in life and politics alike arises from the irremediable certainty that we will all, albeit in varying quantities and at varying speeds, lose the things we most want. Youth, beauty, love, status, money, memory, life itself, and this last in exactly equal quantity. Coming into the world helpless and consigned to mortality, Human beings might be expected to find their ethical and emotional home in humility. But as the joke reminds us, however much we may want to be humble, few of us really want to feel humbled, and least of all when we say we do. We hate losers because we are born to lose. <laughs> but these, these patriarchs um, going on about humility, it's just toxic masculinity isn't it yeah i think it probably is and you know to invoke an ally term i think it's a kind of gaslighting as well humility is is almost indistinguishable as soon as it's externalized from the humble brag and the difficulty of talking about humility writing about humility is that actually it's a term that acquires its meaning its meaning only in reticence in abstention Mm. Um, you know, generosity is really most powerful when it's anonymous, when it comes with no claim on gratitude or praise. And every ostentatious claim to my own humility is really a kind of aggrandizement, another form of self-inflation, which is all the more narcissistic for not being acknowledged as such. What's the difference so, in, in, hmm. in your between humility and modesty? Yeah, that's that's it's it's such a an, an interesting 
and subtle question, but I think modesty, distinction, but, but modesty is, I think, more to do with external presentation. That right. one can be seen to be modest. One can dress and speak and conduct oneself modestly. And in fact, it doesn't fall foul of the paradox that as soon as you do that, you're actually cancelling out your own gesture. Modesty, in a way, is much less prone to that eliminable ambiguity, whereas humility cannot present itself without betraying itself. I think modesty can. Mm. Um, but that's why humility, I think, is more elusive and, in a way, more urgent. It's more urgent because we 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 desperately need to find a way of recognizing the force of this kind of un, unlimited self-inflation as a mode of political conduct. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm saying this, you know, very likely on on the eve of um, mm. uh, a conflagration in the Ukraine. Absolutely. What's about to happen? Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the Fileo fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun? Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now get 20% below MSRP for an average of $15,178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. And the second half of your book then looks at the psychoanalytic process. And it, with its attention on language, obviously, again, so you describe this process as a new and disturbing intimacy with one's own unconscious. Um, and you quote beyond uh, psychoanalysis is about two rather frightened people in the room together. And the unconscious, once it speaks, can humiliate us. And this is a very interesting point. You, you, you note, but there is a shared reality in that room. And could you talk about that? Yeah. The shared reality is the reality that both parties in the psychoanalytic consulting room know that the other has an unconscious. And so the kind of understanding you get when you say something that feels unbearably vulnerable or humiliating it's not really, I think, the issue. I mean, it, it, it might be, but it's not fundamentally the assurance of empathy, of somebody else saying, oh, yeah, yeah, I know that. I know how you feel. It's an assurance that goes a bit deeper because it, the, the, 
the acknowledgement of something incredibly painful or shaming um, gets you right where you live. And somehow the, the unspoken contract of the analytic couple is that whoever's listening to you knows this place where you live, knows something about it intimately and can tune into it. And, and I think that's a communication that is that is deeper than than sympathy or empathy. And you point out that we come to analysis often because we have lost something, mm-hmm. um, a person, or or in fact, esteem, self esteem, yeah. um, or or love. But we also come to lose something, don't we? To to separate to separate ourselves from certain kinds of behaviors or, or, or people who, who who are not good for us. So that that exchange of so so loss becomes something that is is good for you. Uh which is which is so interesting. And I wanted to ask you about the amazing Winnicott uh, quote I've been thinking about um ever since I, I've read it and I, I I quote it here. It is a joy to be hidden and a disaster not to be found. Explain. Yeah, it's such a beautiful message. Um, uh, and in fact, it's interesting because I quoted in the context, almost in passing, not really talking about what he's saying, but, but just invoking it as an example of a, a thought that induces intense humility in me. Its concentration of paradox and of psychic depth is is so stunning that it's the sort of thing that makes me just want to give up. But it's important also, I guess, as I go on to say, I don't just give up. I think what he's saying, though, when he talks about it being uh, a joy to hide but a disaster not to be found, is that there is a kind of native humility that says there is something I want to keep to myself. There is a fundamental reticence, uh, a need withdrawn not to be seen, that is actually a matter of life and death mm-hmm. for a person. That I mean, Winnicott sees the violation or the penetration to this core that doesn't want to be seen as the definition, really, of a kind of crime of intimacy, a, a, a betrayal of the other person um, in their very core. You know, he gives the example of reading a daughter's, a young daughter's diary. And at the same time, of course, he points out that the young daughter might leave the diary out, that there is a very sort of strange intimacy between the wish to conceal and to hide oneself and the wish to be seen. And and not being found is a disaster, but we want to be found in a way that keeps our enigma intact, that allows us to keep secrets. What the daughter wants in that passage when she leaves the diary out is not for the diary to be read out, but for it to be acknowledged that there is a diary. So that what's exposed is not her, her, her deepest secrets, the things she doesn't want to be seen, but she also wants it to be known that there is something to be seen, 
that there is always more to her than she's able to convey. And that is something she might need a mother or whoever walks in to know. So what I was thinking there is that in this despicable language, uh, you know, it really, it, it, there, there's comedy, I suppose, and flipping the language. You know, there, there's something great about calling someone who is very invested in winning a loser and sort of flipping those values. But um, a loser, uh, going back to Winnicott, is, is, is someone who is unseen on the one hand and who wants to be found, I suppose, and then also a sort of figure of public ridicule. So just to, to um, humanise all the theory, you know, a child in the playground who feels like a loser um, or who has internalised that description of themselves as a very sad um, and um, and you note that um, that that child is actually inside Trump, and you go on to work that idea with um, your your wonderful writing on Kafka, letters to his father, and you 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 describe Kafka Kafka's father as being a tyrant over his son's soul that the sort of psychopathology of Trump is also lurking in that story. Yes. Kafka is, is one of sort of three little case studies in the possibility yeah. of an art of losing. And rather than oppose him in a sort of straightforward binary to Trump, the, the, the difference between them is a little less oppositional than that. Because Trump, Kafka, in a way, in, in that letter to his father, gets quite close to Trump. And, of course, they had a similar sort of pathology when it come, came to the relationship to the father. Both of them, I think, grew up in terror of a humiliating father. Trump's solution, which is much more banal and much more violent, is to identify fully with the aggressor. And Freud's famous term. So eliminate any difference between them and therefore any, any vulnerability. In a sense, he cannibalizes the father and becomes the father, uh, sort of incontestable and unvanquishable, always on top, whatever happens. Kafka, on the other hand, accedes to the position of loser and embraces it tells his father that in every way that counts, he's been defeated by his father. He's been humiliated, he's been bested, he's been outdone in size, in force, in knowledge, in business acumen, in authority. Catholic the loser, dad is the winner. And what the letter then does is it subjects its own terms to a very subtle reversal. It, it's a kind of surreptitious and, in a way, quite sly revenge, this letter, because it, it doesn't turn the loser into a winner exactly. It sort of abolishes the distinction between winning and losing. 
Mm. That's what really interests me about it. Uh, as we go on, the, 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 there's a kind of precarity about the father as winner and the son as loser. There's a kind of ambiguous position where uh, something pantomimic, where Kafka is both genuinely terrified of this monstrous father and sort of gurning behind him, making fun of him. Um, and he doesn't really allow us to decide between the two. But I think he, he shows us a way of inhabiting the position of the mm. loser in a way that is enriching, life enhancing. And I mean, you know, it's, it's just not a word one necessarily associates with Kafka. And yet there, there is something about Kafka's writer with writing. Saturated as it is with loss and humiliation, there is something about it that I find incredibly energizing. Yes, it is sly revenge, though, isn't it? Um, yeah. He he has he has the language, he has the words, and yeah. um, and yeah. and he can he can live in the world in another way because of um, the language. Josh, I'm I'm just looking at the time and the questions are coming in. They're just mm -hmm. finally. I think you're making a case for some kind of radical humility. What what does that mean? It means a humility that is more than external and gestural, which I think is the problem with all these proposals for a more humble public culture that philosophers like Michael Sandel have, have tried to put forward. But instead of saying, of enjoining us to, to humility, which can always be disguised, humility would actually be about intimacy with our own hubris. And I think that's why the Kafka book is so powerful, because actually what Kafka performs is not just his humility, his willingness to lose, but a kind of hubris that you just outline, where in taking up the position of the loser, he also lets us know that he has the, the, the words, and with the words, the concealed but incredibly powerful wish and will and power to kill the father. Mm. And I think only when you're intimate with the wish to kill the father can you can you really claim anything like humility. Otherwise it's it's just a performance. It's just it's just humble bragging. It's just something that you can you can say on Instagram. Real real humility requires an intimacy with with its opposite, with all our arrogance and our destructiveness, our, our wish to kill. I think I say in relation to Charlie Brown, in fact, that you can't be humble before the world unless you've known the wish to destroy it. And that's Simone Weil's position as well. As, as yeah. well. Okay, so some questions are coming up here. <laughs> Here's a nice one to you, Josh. What would happen if Donald Trump became convinced of our love and acceptance of him, would he improve? What a brilliant proposition. I mean, it, it, it's it's one, it's a, it's a kind of a scenario no one has ever put to me and I've never put to myself. Um, it strikes me instinctively that it's one of the few gestures that might genuinely be disarming. In other words, 
everything he does really is a provocation to his enemies to hate him. And actually, he then feeds off that programmed response. So as, as long as we're hating him, the problem is we are actually playing his game. I wonder what would happen if he was sort of made to feel the love from us. I guess he would, in the end, denounce it as fake news. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess he would say that the fake news media is trying to convince you they love me, but then, you know, those who really love me don't let those losers in the MSM mislead you because we know the real story here, right? But nonetheless, I do wonder whether whether it would be conceivable for Trump to be confronted with a kind of, you know, I mean, a, a kind of Simone Weil, I mean, you mentioned Simone Weil, you know, a kind of an unconditional, a love that was indifferent to anything that he could do, just, which is not sort of fanatical devotion, not identification with the aggressor. I do think it would be disarming. I, I, I couldn't imagine offering it myself, but I do, I do think it, it would be strangely powerful. Okay. And another question here. What might be the eventual fate of the individual with power, in this case Trump, who is incapable of recognizing the existence of losing and loss? Does reality eventually win out or not? Well, I'm not sure it does. I think that Trump will seal himself and everyone who wants to go with him in this alternative shared reality, in, in the kind of sealed off space of the liar. And, and by that, I don't, I don't just mean that in a sort of facile, polemical way. But I, I, I'm referring to something that, that the, the psychoanalyst Wilfred Bion says when he says that, that, that the thing about the liar's speech is that it is created entirely by the liar. It's in, it's in the subjective control of the liar, whereas those of us who tell the truth are more vulnerable because we depend on the truth, right? That, that to, to be in truth is to be in a relation of dependence on something that is bigger than us, whereas to be in the universe of the lie is to be inside your own creation which you can make and remake and bend and break according to your will. And I think that Trump will always, even as his last breaths approach, I think he will choose to remain in that reality. I expect he will die denying that he's dying. Mm -hmm. That is my sense that, um, you know, if you think about that wonderful, wonderful, I mean, that extraordinary exchange with Raffensperger, the Secretary of State for Georgia. What's most striking about it is, is that, I mean, perhaps it's cynicism, but he really seems to have a kind of cast-iron, impregnable belief in the truth of his version of events. It's as though... He knows he's lying, but this this lie has more weight and authority to it because it's his. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then and then the idea that um a sort of total uh invulnerability uh sort of immunity to invulnerability, which no one believes in anyway. Not mm-hmm. no one, I, I I don't think, is strength. And so here's a question that speaks to that. Mm-hmm. Josh, how can we link misogyny with your loser paradigm? There is a wonderful uh and and in a way sort of little name, I think, at least in this country. The French love this quote from Freud, but we don't quote it very much. But Freud says that the bedrock of all illness is the refusal of the feminine, which I think is quite remarkable. And by the refusal of the feminine, I think what he means is the position of vulnerability, the willingness to receive, to take something else in, to recognize my own limits and really give oneself over to the to the presence of the other. And the reason that the refusal of that is the bedrock of illness is because you deal yourself in a bubble of your own righteousness, your own rightness, and never really expose yourself to the possibility of the other's truth. Whereas the feminine, as Freud is, is, is defining it here, is something like the willingness to open yourself to the possibility of the other's truth. So I think when Trump discharges his rage in the particular form of misogyny, it has something to do with that. It has something to do with being able to invoke the vulnerability of the body that might get assaulted, of the feelings that might get offended, and to laugh at it and to assert one's absolute power over it. Because the alternative, which would be to open oneself to it, is actually very frightening. The the, the, the stake of misogyny is you really have to keep it going. You have to sustain it. And there has to be no compromise on this because the minute you admit the possibility that you might be hurting or harming the other is the moment that you become a bit feminine. And and remember that the first great enraging insult that Trump felt that he endured at the beginning of the administration was that his spokesperson, Spicer, Sean Spicer, was played on Saturday Night Live by a woman. <laughs> he, he, you know, this was the first and, and great unforgivable humiliation. And when that happened, Spicer's days were numbered. Because in some sense, that sort of humiliation by a woman was, and in, you know, it, it, in a way, he, underst- he understood the insult. He understood it all too well, I think. Mm. Okay, so here we go. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. I rather like the fact that Trump was openly vile rather than putting on a front. It is very hard not to read something more sinister, underhanded, when someone is being humble. That's true. What should we aspire to if we aren't capable of real humility? Yes, something like real honesty, which I agree, there is something, I I think, one of the things that doesn't rate us about Trump is his brazenness, his willingness to put it out there. But I think that what's lacking still, I mean, a lot is lacking, but is 
that the honesty doesn't really come with a capacity for self-examination. So it's a very, in a way, restricted and sealed off honesty. Because if you don't acknowledge that there is another truth, that there isn't another way of saying things or thinking about things, then it's a kind there's something cheap about your honesty. Mm-hmm. It's only when you'd be willing to examine yourself and open yourself to some other way of thinking or believing, uh, uh, some other way of inhabiting or of seeing the world, that that kind of brazenness could be called a meaningful honesty and could have anything of humility about it. But as long as it's just the honesty, uh, an honesty that is sort of inside the protected bubble of your own reality, then it's a kind of tautological honesty. You know, you're only you're only saying all the time what you've already said, however brazen, however offensive you get. In a way, you're always just repeating yourself, and 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 that's something that Trump is 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 astoundingly good at, really, getting out by by merely repeating himself. And and not just Trump. I mean, um, okay, let's go. Let's just go on. Let's get off. Let's get off that subject and go for this question here, Thomas Bernard. Um, this is the last question. Um, I, I, I believe that you discuss Thomas Bernard in your book, which you do. You discuss the losers. So it's a, a sort of an unbroken monologue, um, failure and genius. Um, and, and how do you put this to work? Um, right. Your own arguments. So Bernard's novel, um, that, that is my sort of, you know, the first of these three case studies, um, literary case studies, is called um, Der Untergeher, which is translated, and I think it's probably the best they could muster, as the loser. Um, it really means the one who undergoes, or alternatively, the one who suffers, the one who has to bear it. So the one who has to bear it, who is it in this book? There are, there are in a way, three main characters. There is the narrator, who, and there is his friend who commits suicide early on, in, who has committed suicide. Um, he's really at the wake, in fact, of his of his friend's funeral. And then there is a sort of offstage character who keeps appearing, Glenn Gould. The three men were all short students at the Mutatia in Salzburg, and the narrator and his friend meet Glenn Gould. They hear him play four bars of a Bach prelude. And at that very moment, they know that it's time to give up. And Gould is an elusive, enigmatic character, but he gives the name to the narrator's friend of the loser. And he gives to the narrator the name of the philosopher. The philosopher knows he's lost. He he gives up on the piano. He knows that he will never play like Gould, and this seems to him to be a sentence, a life sentence. But he then tries to conduct a life inside that intimate knowledge of loss. And so there's still a life to be had. The loser, in a way, slinks away in a kind of ressentiment, um, in a mean-spirited resentment that culminates in a particularly sort of vicious, ostentatious suicide that hurts the people around him. The book is really about different ways of inhabiting loss. 
different ways in which one suffers not being what one would want to be, not being everything what one would want to be. And, and, and that's really how, I, how I'm trying to bring the book into, um, into, into the perspective of, of, of this little book. Mm. And it's one of the pleasures of Josh's book, I have to say, his really astute attention to language in politics and psychoanalysis. Uh, there's a whole section towards the, the end of the book on meritocracy being a kind, a kind of neoliberal delusion, um, which we don't have time to go into. It's a, it's a, it's a very dense and rewarding book. We have to finish there, Josh. I'm sorry to say. Maybe I'll end um, with uh, a quote that you give us from the poet Paul Salan. Uh, again, in, in which you you're making um, another case for language. You make many for attention to language, rather. Uh, and this is to keep yes and no unsplit. Uh, truth and uncertainty, Josh Cohen writes, they must be kept unsplit. So thank you for that, Josh. Um, I hope that you all enjoy the um, losers. And um, Josh, what do you think about your brother Leonard Cohen getting in there first with with beautiful losers? Anything to say well, about that? I, I'm going to, you know, j just as uh, Kafka wrote a letter to his father, I wrote a letter to my older brother. And, uh, and and decry the humiliations he as he, he visits on me. Um, uh, I, I I say this to him when I listen to him um, most nights, anyways. Thank you very much. Um, you looking so forward to your next book. Um, good night, everybody. Um, thank you for your great questions, and um, let's all have a um, let's all have um, a glass of something. Um, to celebrate this this great stretch of thinking from from Josh Cohen. Good night. Thank you so much, Deborah. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.